The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. You'll turn in your scriptures to the Gospel of John in chapter 11. <coughs> it seemed fitting to me and the elders to change the reading and sermon this morning in light of our present sorrow and direct us to Christ, the resurrection and the life. I'll read selected verses from John chapter 11. I'll begin at verse 1, reading through to verse 6, and then to verse 17 to 26 and 32 to 44. But I'll announce those as we go through the reading. Let's hear then God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world Verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, 
Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amen and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, speak unto us now. We ask that you administer this passage, this truth to our hearts, that you might comfort us and strengthen us in our hour of need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How does God counsel the Christian and direct the Christian in our times of great sorrow and grief? We are in such a time now of personal sorrow and corporate sorrow at the passing of our beloved Pete. And yet God would have us hear this morning of his son, the resurrection and the life. The resurrection and the life. Lazarus is a blessed resting place. This passage is a blessed resting place for the Christian in times of grief and bereavement. We're called this day by this narrative to lay hold of our Savior, who is unto us resurrection and life. We want to see him today in all his wonderful, death-destroying glory. Our Jesus, our Lord, and our Savior. And we're called to hold fast to him in the hour of our trial. The first thing I want us to see this morning, and briefly I'll work through the passage, not in any great detail, but I hope it will leave us with this impression. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus loved Lazarus. Three times in our passage today, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 36, we are told of Jesus' keen love for Lazarus, for Mary and for Martha. The last reference, verse 36, is the crowd's conclusion that Jesus loved Lazarus. They saw his anger at his death. They saw his sorrow at his death. And they say, this man loved Lazarus. The first time we're told of Jesus' love is in verse 3. We read this, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Notice the phrasing there, he whom you love is ill. That's the message that comes from the sisters to our Lord. Calvin writes this, because of Christ's love, Mary and Martha are led to entertain a confident hope of obtaining assistance. A confident hope of obtaining assistance from Christ. He continues, for where the love of God is, 
There, deliverance is certain and at hand. Deliverance is certain and at hand because God cannot forsake him whom he loveth. God cannot forsake him whom he loveth. How is it that Christ loved Lazarus? He loves him first as the eternal son of God from eternity past. That he along with father and spirit elected Lazarus unto everlasting life and set his love upon him then. But this is Jesus also, the God-man, who in time loved Lazarus. It's clear there's a special connection, a special love between Mary, Martha, and Jesus. We know not in what that connection consists. But we can say this very clearly. His love for Lazarus, his love for every true and sincere Christian, is a love which would ultimately take him to the cross. That's the scale of love Christ has for Lazarus. But consider the sisters' appeal. Their appeal to Christ, and then consider yourself also, dear Christian. The appeal is not, Lazarus who loves you is ill. The appeal is this, the one whom you love is ill. There's a world of difference there, dear friends. A world of difference. The one whom you, Jesus, the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, you love him. It is Christ's love on, for Lazarus on display. Not Lazarus's display of love for Christ, though that was true also. It is Christ's love for the weak, the sick, the dying, the sorrowful that is on display in this passage. Friends, we must never feel as God's children, we must never feel that somehow we need to reach up to God or, or attain a certain level of holiness or Christian performance for God to love us. That's inverting the gospel. God does not love us. We have achieved a certain level of holiness. No, he loves us simply because he loves us. Christian, as children of God here today, hear this. Jesus loves his brethren. The Father loves his children. The Spirit loves those whom he indwells. And it matters not how you have come into God's house this day with feelings of loss. No matter what your physical or emotional estate, no matter if you've come in feeling broken and crushed and alone and beat down, there is this undeniable fact. Jesus loves his brethren and God loves his children. The old hymn puts it well, does it not? His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Jesus loves his people. 
But the second thing we also see in this passage today is that Jesus delayed so that Lazarus died. It's the most paradoxical thing in this whole passage. Jesus delayed so that Lazarus died. We read this in verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Notice the connecting word. Because he loved them, he delayed. It's staggering, isn't it? Why would he not answer the sister's request instantly? We know from the gospel records he didn't even need to travel and see Lazarus. He could have said the word and Lazarus would have been healed. All their troubles would have been over. Their sorrow and suffering gone. Why did he leave them to suffer? Why would he cause them later to say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why, why, why? We're left asking why this week, aren't we? As David and I and Lorraine stood before Pete yesterday, we had this very discussion, didn't we? Why? Why is not a bad question to ask, friends. Our Lord asked it on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Why can be asked like this, Lord, why have you done this to me? Or it can be asked as a question, as Dave said yesterday, which can profoundly profit our faith. Why have you done this, O Lord? Why have you done this? If you know anything about Pete's condition in the last week, one thing we concluded yesterday in answer to that why question, why would God, why would God take him so quickly? We came to the conclusion yesterday, undoubtedly, one reason why God took him so quickly was to take away from him weeks and months of suffering and hardship. Oh, there's no doubt about that. But sometimes the why question is not so easily answered in our time of trial. And often the why question, if we ask in faith and submission, we have to leave it with the Lord. But our Lord does actually provide an answer to the why of Lazarus here, does he not? He tells us why he's going to delay. He tells us why he's not going to heal him. Look back in verse 4. When Jesus heard of this, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And friends, we have to acknowledge this doesn't answer all the details of every why question. This is a baseline, a foundational answer to the why question that we ask in times of trouble. But the answer is this, that Father, Son, and Spirit may be glorified in the death of Lazarus, in the death of our brother Pete, and in our own death as Christians. God will be glorified. God will be glorified. It is to God's glory when the Christian dies. Precious, it says, in the sight of God are the death of his saints. In the Christian, in Christian death, 
God claims what is rightfully his. God takes unto himself what belongs to him. Jesus' delay here, God's delays, uh, answers to prayer which say, No, my son, no, my daughter, are all according to his perfect will, his wise will, and it reveals that he will be glorified, even in the shocking death of saints. God will be glorified. In that very moment of our passing, we are made perfect in holiness. To God be the glory. But the next thing we notice in this passage is there in verse 33, Jesus' anger over Lazarus' death. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and also the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We read in verse 38 again, then Jesus deeply moved again. Deeply moved, greatly troubled. The language here used in scripture and elsewhere in in Greek literature outside the New Testament speaks of intense anger, fury, rage, acute anger. B.B. Warfield puts it like this. What John tells us is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. The emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. Righteous anger, not unrighteous anger. Controlled and sanctified anger, not uncontrolled anger. But great anger nonetheless. So great it was visible to all those around him. Consider this, friends. The God-man is stood there surrounded by people mourning and weeping and wailing at the loss of their beloved one, Lazarus. He sees the sorrow of the human condition in this very moment. And Calvin writes, he was moved to a holy indignation and a sorrow at the terrific brood which sin had borne agitated by a righteous detestation of what evil had wrought in the world, death. Christ is angry. This deep, deeply moved, this this trouble in his soul is anger. Make no mistake about it. Why? Because he sees the tearing and devastating effects of sin. He sees the terminating and the separating effects of sin. And friends, we must say it's our own sin that he sees. Let's not dodge that reality. The wages of our sin is death. And not just our sin he sees the effects of, he sees the broad effects of sin. Jesus is angry at sin and death. And consider this, friends. God's anger always leads to righteous action. God's anger always leads to righteous action. Friends, we have to say in case of the wicked and the unbelieving, God's anger leads to condemnation, righteous condemnation. 
But in the case of God's, in the case of the Christian, of God's children, God's anger, what is that righteous action? He nailed sin to the tree. He destroyed the powers of Satan. And he broke apart the bonds and powers of death. As Paul would write later on, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we see what happens when Jesus Christ gets angry at sin? He crushes death. He crushes Satan's head and gives the Christian, his brethren, victory in him. That's what Jesus' anger at sin leads to. But not only is Jesus angry over Lazarus' death, he is sorrowful over Lazarus' death. Verse 34, 35. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus was sorrowful. He mourned over Lazarus' death. His deep movement and trouble, his anger gave way to deep sorrow. Perfect anger yielded to perfect sorrow. He wept at the wicked and destructive effects of sin on Lazarus and Mary and Martha. The effects of sin upon Lazarus himself in death and the effects of sin upon those who mourned his loss. Consider this. We've been seeing in Matthew's gospel, have we not, how Jesus has spent his time bringing the kingdom to earth by preaching and healing, being with the outcast, meeting the sick, healing lepers, restoring sight. Matthew's gospel tells us many times over, he had compassion on them. And now we see, friends, his compassion and his deep, deep love on his friends who are blighted by the effects of sin. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus wept because death The punishment for sin is even more horrible in his eyes than in ours. And friends, this is not love for Lazarus at a distance. It is not a theoretical love. It is love for one who is united to Lazarus even while he lies in the grave. Jesus is united to his brethren. Jesus is united to his brethren. You see, it's love for those whom he has an inseparable union. By faith, the Christian becomes inseparably united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what is said to Saul by the risen Lord when he's on the road to Damascus. 
and he's about to persecute the Christians and throw them in prison, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute a Christian is to persecute Christ. When a Christian dies, because they are united to Christ, Christ feels it deeply and personally. That's why we can say, dear friends, the Christian is never alone. Not even in death. Not even in death. How can you be alone, I ask, when you're united to Christ? How can you be alone when you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit? How can we be alone when we have legions of angels standing guard around us, sent to do that work by God? We are never alone because we are united to Christ who sorrows with us. And because Christ sorrows with and for his brethren, notice what that makes him do. Notice the direction of his actions throughout this whole passage. Our next consideration is this. Jesus moved toward the tomb of Lazarus. This is profound. Jesus moved toward the tomb of Lazarus. The movement and direction of our Lord Jesus from verse 1 following is, is carefully choreographed by himself. And yet steadily, slowly, but surely, even with several days delay it seems, what's he doing? He is moving inexorably towards the point and place of death. Think on that, friends. Jesus is moving to the point and place of death. He moves towards the mourners. He moves towards the tomb. He moves towards the place of death. He desires to be found in those places. He moves towards the tomb to be there. What a great contrast there is between Jesus and the people of this world, the rulers of the Jews who did everything they could to avoid coming close to death. The good Samaritan tells us that they passed by. But Jesus goes to ground zero of the place of death. Friends, this is really important to us because his actions are commensurate with his overall mind and mission to ultimately go to the cross. As we read the Gospels, friends, especially the Gospel of Luke, we read this time and time again. Jesus set his mind to go toward Jerusalem. He set his mind to go to the place of his own death. He trod the path to death, not reluctantly, but by faith in submission to God's will, as he was drawn to the tomb of Lazarus by love, he was drawn to the cross of Calvary by that same love. This is deep for us, friends. Jesus spared no expense to be in the presence of those who had died and were dying. Indeed, he went further than that, didn't he? 
He wasn't just with them. He actually died himself. He actually died himself. He knew what it was to go through the process of dying. He knew what it was to be buried in a tomb. Jesus knows intimately what it is like to die. He's determined not just to be with those in the place of death, but ultimately to die himself for our very salvation. But the point of the narrative is surely this, is it not? That death could not hold him. Death could not hold him. Because the last thing we consider this morning is the very heart of the passage. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Notice what he says there in verse 4. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It's a prediction of what he will do by the power of the Spirit. He will raise Lazarus to life Again, And that, friends, is precisely what happened. He goes to the tomb, and Jesus commands the stone should be rolled away. Uh, he prays to his Father in heaven, not for power to do it, because he's got the Spirit already. But he prays that those around him who see what will happen will believe. And then we read this in verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! come out. Lazarus, come out. Jesus has been filled with anger and sorrow and compassion. And all this is manifested when, friends, he speaks with a voice which can wake the dead. Oh, think on that. He speaks with a voice which wakes the dead. Lazarus, come out. Imagine that, friends, commanding a corpse to rise from the dead. Jesus did it. By the word of his command, his friend Lazarus, who had been under the power of death, whose body was stinking, is fully restored to life. The man who had died came out. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus came out. I searched in vain to, 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 to find who, who made this point or who said this idea. But one theologian somewhere said, had Jesus not commanded Lazarus to come out and simply said, come out, then all the graves would have opened and all the dead would have risen at the cry of his command. But we'll have to wait for that, friends, till the second coming. When he will raise his children, his brethren, to the resurrection and to life. By what power did Jesus do this? We might say he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yep, that's true. We might say, well, he was fully God and he can do these things. Yes, that's true also. But he tells us. Back in verse 24, he's trying to, to tease that faith, that personal faith in him out of Martha. And she says, yes, I know he, Lazarus is going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But the point she's missing is that the resurrection stands before her. For he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you see his point, friends? The power of resurrection stands right before her. How so? Because Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience in conformity wholly to the law of God, both in the positive requirements of obeying God and, in a sense, the negative requirements fulfilling all the curses of God's breaking of the law, the punishment of breaking the law. Jesus fulfilled it all. And he has, dear friends, the power of an indestructible life. Death cannot hold him. So that he in turn might wield that power of resurrection and life to all those who love him and trust him. Listen to this. Shorter Catechism 37. What are the benefits? No, 37. Yes, that's right. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Notice this. The question is asking, what do we get from Jesus Christ at the moment we die? This is resurrection and life power. Listen. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. The moment Pete's soul left him, he entered glory and his soul was made perfect in holiness. But it doesn't end there, the question. Not only do we enter glory and and are made perfect in holiness, listen to this. And their bodies, the bodies of Christians, their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. That's the power of Christ in resurrection and life. Jesus says to us to this day, I am the resurrection and life. Notice that resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's resurrection. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's everlasting life. Our sure and certain hope, I would say our sure and certain knowledge, is that our friend Pete is far more holy than we are now, having been received into glory. And it's true also, dear Christian, of you, that the moment that you depart from this world, your soul will immediately go to be with God, transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And we will wait in glory with God for the resurrection of our bodies when our perfect souls shall be reunited with our perfect bodies and we shall be perfect people and we shall reign together with him forever. If you're not of faith here this day, if you don't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, at this present time, none of this blessedness applies to you. And we would urge you, dear friend, 
old or young, it matters not. Today is the day of repentance. Because as we've seen rather graphically this week, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day of repentance and faith. But for us who believe, Christ, we're told, is the first fruits. He is the first to be raised. He is the great cause of our own resurrection. To us who believe, we shall be raised like him also. That's what union does. If he is raised, so shall we be raised. On that great and last day, we'll hear that voice. Those words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray.